Listener Production. Hi, 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 hi. Hello. Yes, hi. Oh, I see you over there. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Stop, stop, stop. Thank you guys so much. Welcome to come out wherever you are. This is a safe space for curious people to learn more about the coming out experience. So, congratulations. You are now a part of this beautiful community. And because this is a podcast about the coming out experience, it is only fair that I go first. My name is Sean Zepps. I am a gay man who uses he, him pronouns. I first came out in early 2000. I was in a closet and I love to tell everyone that. I feel so ironic. And I last came out on Monday in a cafe to the barista. We've been like communicating back and forth a lot recently and finally brought up the wife question. And then you're forced to come out like right then and there in public. But it went really well. It was very apologetic and very sweet. Today, we are welcoming a brand new member to the Come Out Wherever You Are family, Rudy Jane Rigg. I am so excited. Can you tell us, well, first introduce yourself, but then tell us when you first came out and when you last came out. Hello, everyone. My name is Rudy Jane Rigg. I'm a queer, non-binary, trans-masculine human being. My pronouns are they, them. And I first came out when I was about fresh 12 to my mother, who took it extremely well, and there was no issue at all, which is fantastic at 12 years old. And I last came out to pretty much everyone a couple of weeks ago. And that, again, went super, super well. So I've just been lucky. Rudy Jean Rigg is a content creator, an advocate, and an educator. You might know Rudy from TikTok, where they're the host of Rainbow History Class and Trans Athletica. Rainbow History Class is the queer and trans history you and I did not get in school. Rudy started it back in April of 2021, and in just over a year, they have clocked 11 million likes on TikTok, which is crazy phenomenal. In 2021, they started dreaming up the documentary series Trans Atletica, which is all about the barriers facing trans people in sport. We have so much to unpack. I am super excited. So I'm going to stop rambling on. Let's dive in. Here's Rudy. So let's go back, 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 back again. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? I grew up here in Nam in Melbourne, and I've never really left. And I did leave, actually, briefly a couple of months ago to go to the UK. And as much as I love that, I do really enjoy living here. And it's just really, I think, the city for me. So amazing. I'm born and raised here. <laughs> and when we think about the foundational years there, and this is probably a more interesting question for me because I'm American, but when you think back to your childhood would Melbourne have been considered an accepting place? I think so. I think that the, particularly the arts uh, culture here has always been something that the city is known for. Mm. And with that, you know, as we know, it brings our community along with it. So I think there has been uh, pockets of acceptance. I think that in general, obviously, there's been an improvement over the years and in a change and shift in that kind of cultural space. But mm. I think overall, I mean, I grew up in the west of Melbourne. If I grew up in the east, it would have been different. If I went to a private school, it would have been different. But my particular experience was quite accepting, yeah. Amazing. And when you think about your environment, specifically, you know, your, you know, your nuclear family or the people that you were surrounded by, 
was that an accepting group of people? Like when you look back at being a kid, would it have been a group of people you would have wanted to come out to? Oh, yes. Yeah. My my mother is one of the most kindest and loyal people that I know. And my dad is, you know, he's a punk from, you know, back in the days, English. And so they've always sort of upheld really great values. And they, you know, I was, me and my sister were brought up in that space. And we were always brought up to celebrate creativity and individuality. And so being queer is something that kind of came with that, you know, story mm. as well. Um, and, you know, my parents love us so much that we could be anyone and they, they would still feel the same way. Wow. And you felt that way as a young person? Oh, absolutely. I felt that way forever. Wow. That's iconic. And probably why it would have been possible for you to come out so young anyways. And the reason I say that is mm. on the show, when we speak to a lot of people, their concept of sexuality and exploration occurs later. And, and by later, I mean 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And so when you get an opportunity to speak to someone who is able to articulate their truth at such a young age, you can't help but wonder how or why. And so if you're a parent listening, this is the potential that your child feels comfortable talking to you because of the accepting environment that you have raised them in. Exactly. So when did you first go, I am not like everyone else? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it was... I don't know. See, I'm a feeling orientated person. I experience everything through feeling. And it, and it's funny because, uh, you know, I was diagnosed as autistic last year. And one of the things that I had to confront was the stereotype of autistic people not being able to feel empathy or get a hold of feelings and kind of get around that. But that's like the complete opposite to, you know, a portion of, or, you know, it, there's a depth to the autistic experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I've always been someone who feels things very, very deeply. And so I sort of, you know, kind of got into that headspace, I think, quite young. And I understood how important and, uh, you know, sacred friendships and relationships were to me. And I guess naturally figuring out who I was attracted to is going to come part and parcel with being that kind of person. But yeah, I think I just had a crush on someone in, in, in year seven. And I like fell really hard for them. And that was when I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> and so the first time that you spoke those words into existence, and I think it's helpful for people who have heard your introduction, you were assigned what at birth and you came out as what first? Yeah. So I was like assigned female at birth. Um, you know, I'm grappling with that phrase as well. I don't know whether it's like, uh, sex reductive. I'm not really sure. But anyway, I was assigned, you know, woman, uh, a woman at birth and I came out as non-binary just after my 21st birthday. So I was about 21 and a half. And that for me was incredible. It was very freeing. But, you know, it's been about five years now and I came out again recently and kind of changed my pronouns. And, and that again has been very freeing. So that's kind of been my experience. So when I did come out as like not straight at, at 12, yeah. it was to do with my attraction to to women or, or women identifying people. Okay, got it. And just because I think it's really valuable, especially as someone who hosts a show like this and is desperate to learn, what would be a sentence as you're grappling with it that would maybe be better or less gender reductionist for me to ask people in the future instead of saying you were assigned woman at birth? I don't, you know what? I don't know. And I wish I had the answer because like I think... It's, it's one of those things sometimes, I mean, with Rainbow History Class, for example, 
we have to figure out how to refer to someone who was alive like hundreds of years ago mm. and it's really hard. I don't know. I think maybe just, I wish I had the answer, Sean. I actually don't. Like yeah. that's the thing. And that's why I'm like still using that terminology a, a little, you know, and it's, it's cool that we've used it today because it's like, I don't actually have the answer. Like I can't even like, as someone who's a writer and has a degree in writing, I wish that I knew, yeah. <laughs> knew which string of words to put together, but I really don't. Um, but if I do come across something, I will send it to you. Yes, please. Because I'll be honest with you, I felt uncomfortable asking it and I do not feel uncomfortable talking to you at all about anything. And the moment I have to go there, because I know that your truth, that that was always the truth, right? Mm, and so yeah. when I think about Rudy as a child coming out as a lesbian, which would have been what you would have had to have done back then, I still think of that person as a man. Yeah. And so yeah. to go back and have to talk about that history feels uncomfortable. And if it feels uncomfortable, then you should ask yourself why. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I, it's kind of, I think any other options would kind of be clunky being like, what did the doctor tell you? Or like, uh, you know, what? how did you identify before this point? I think that like in the context of your show, especially is probably the best way to do it. Yeah. But um, again, it, it's kind of hard because it's, it's, I think it's fresh discourse. And I think that the community is sort of still figuring it out. Mm. But I think just kindness and compassion is really go. the only way you can do it. The reason why it matters is because you have had a beautiful or, or not so beautiful chance in your lifetime to come out as different things. Mm. And I find it really educational for people to understand the difference. What is it like to come out as uh, sexually, as a gender, maybe even as a specific career, right? We all have to come out in different ways in our life. And I love to unpick how that would be different for someone who's had to do it multiple times. So the first time you speak, you're quite young and you tell people in your life that you are attracted to women. Let's just focus on that. How did oh. people respond? It was kind of odd. I think the, the the kind of barriers that I went through at that point in time was like, you're so young, how do you know? And mm. it's like, well, you just know. Like, even if it's a phase, those feelings should never be devalidated and they should always be respected. And, you know, if the person wants to celebrate those feelings, then I think that they deserve celebration. So for me, I think that was the main barrier. And it's kind of funny in retrospect and, and talking about coming out is is so, I don't know, I have a, like a personal giggle because like, for example, I identify as like pretty asexual. And so, you know, at 12, I guess people were being like, if you're not straight and you like women, like you must want to be sexual. And it's like, those things to me is so separate, you know, like the feelings are feelings. And then however you want to enact those feelings are like a, a separate kettle of fish to me. So mm. I think at 12, I had no idea about asexuality. I had no idea about anything like that. So again, there was like an air of mystery still for me to figure out across the years to follow. But at that time, I think people were just concerned that I was putting myself in a line of fire for discrimination, being so young mm. and unable to maybe articulate exactly how I felt because it was kind of still new. And then also, you know, as adults now, we know that there's a lot of things that you have to deal with and it's only with years of wisdom and experience that you can deal with them in the way that you can now. And there is, I think, a feeling of concern when you see someone that's only been alive for 12 years. Yeah. They haven't had that, like, you know, depth of experience yet. So I can understand the concern, but at the same time, it's like, Love is so beautiful and it's so special. And if you have a child that wants to express love, I think you just have to roll with it for sure. Mm, preach. You bring up something interesting. We're actually very comfortable with phases if you're straight. 
Like if someone, yeah. and yeah. we're also, yes. <laughs> we're also uncomfortable with you exploring uh, your sexuality prior to sexual intercourse, if you're straight. Yeah. If you're not, then it's just a phase or how could you know you haven't done it yet? But every straight person I've ever met knew they were straight before they saw a penis or a vagina. So cut it out. It's not I a know. good enough excuse. Stop it. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Seriously. Well, it just bugs me because I'm like, when I think about my brother, who we're really close, we were talking the other day because I'm writing a book and I wanted to unpick some elements. And he was like, I always thought it was weird when people were like, but how does Sean know? He hasn't had sex yet. And he mm. was over there in the corner two years younger and everyone was fine with the fact that he had a girlfriend. Yes. No one questioned, hey, Stephen, are you sure you like girl? No, it's because you are uncomfortable. You And, and you said it beautifully with empathy, which is maybe what I mean is I'm worried it will be harder for you. But just say yeah. that then. Yeah, I think, you know, my parents have had those kind of conversations with me. I mean, I've always been very like steadfast and sure of myself, even if that's a phase, like, cause it's like, it's still me. Like I'm still living my life. I'm still the same person. I'm just like exploring, you know, what life is about, which mm. is just, I think having a lot of fun living you know, freely and doing your own thing. And I've always done that. And so, you know, those kind of conversations, I think with my parents were kind of hard because again, as a child, it can be hard to articulate yourself and then also kind of, ha you know, have that conversation between someone that is concerned for you mm -hmm. out of a place of love as well. I think that's a really difficult conversation to have for any anyone at any age. You're so right. As a parent, I can really... Um, for the first time in my life, I feel much more compassionate to how tricky it could be to have someone you love. And for most of their life, you were really in control of, of keeping alive and healthy and happy and fed. And then they get to that age where they start to explore their truth and, and your fear barriers come up, like these mm. walls come up and all you want to do is kind of like engulf them and protect them. And it's tricky because even though you shouldn't, we all like to fantasize about people's future, even though it's really, really dangerous. It would be so much yeah. better if we just didn't. Uh, or we fantasized with huge question marks. Instead of thinking about them getting married to a woman, you thought about them getting married to a man or a woman or someone with no gender identity at all. That's yeah. safer. But I do think you've, you you bring empathy to a lot of the ways you think about things, which is, yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky as a parent to look at this young child and know that it, it might actually be a phase and they might just be exploring and how can we help them through that? What I like to say is the fact that you're talking to your parents at all is a, is a means that they've done something right. The alternative is your children don't speak to you and tell you your truth, and then you are not close with them. So it's like, do you want your child to speak as they explore, or would you rather them not speak and have to suffer in silence? Up to you. I think yeah. you should pick the former. It's 100% it's true, and I think, you know, I'm not a parent. From what I've seen, you know, I think this can be applied to like any relationship. You know, it, there does come a point where you have to relinquish a level of control. Mm. And I think people and humans love to be in control of things. We love to think that we know what's going to happen next. I think it brings us a great sense of calm and contentness, especially because obviously life is uncontrollable in general. And I think when you have spent so many years raising a child and you love them unconditionally, having to let go of that part of yourself that's that you had to build to you know, raise a human being, that's incredibly difficult. Mm. And that's something that, you know, would be an incredible existential, you know, moment in time for anyone. So I, you know, I, I do have a, a huge amount of empathy for parents. Mm. Yeah, that's great. 
So we did a Q&A box recently for another conversation with a non-binary human. And one of the questions that came through, I was like, I'm going to save this one for Rudy Jean Wick. And basically what it said is oftentimes people come out as gay, lesbian, bisexual first, and then they come out as non-binary or trans later in life. Obviously, gross generalization, but based off of recent history, that might be true. And a lot of people we've interviewed. And one of the questions were, if you come out with a sexual identity and you're living your life as, say, a lesbian, did you always know that that was wrong as it was happening? As it was happening was a huge part of you going, I said I was a lesbian, but I, in my head, I'm acting as if this is a straight relationship. I'm, I, I, I feel like I'm a guy. I, I, I know that. And I guess the reason they're asking is all along before you come out, are you aware? That's really what they want to understand because they can't relate to that type of consciousness or, or even that type of um, mystery, lies, hidden truth, uh, discovery. And so I'm interested based off your timeline and where we're going in your story, you've come out, you've started to speak to people people don't celebrate. They're, you know, maybe they're saying specific things. Uh, are you sure? Is this a phase? But then you start to explore what it's like to be a lesbian. And did that feel wrong? Yeah, I think for me, it's really interesting because I had no concept of what gender really was until I got to about 13 and 14. And uh, at the time, there was a lot of, there was, like, I don't know the name of it, but it was like, you know, one of the particular waves of feminism that was like chronically online, you know, and that was great. And it was in that moment that I realized I didn't really understand what it meant to be a woman. And it was because I wasn't a woman. Mm. So that was sort of going as like an undercurrent to the whole situation. I did come out as bisexual first because I was like, well, you know, like I, I still, like I think I still had crushes on guys and stuff. And I think for me, it, it wasn't a case of, oh, bisexuality is easier to come out as before lesbian. It was just I definitely knew that I just liked everyone. Mm. I don't think I ever like formally identified as being a lesbian just because again, it was inherently tied in my mind at that age to being a woman. And because I on the side was not like grappling, you know, fighting with the whole, I'm part of this feminist movement and I'm a feminist, but I, I, I don't know how I really sit in the whole community because I don't really feel like I think everyone else feels about being a woman. Yeah. So for me, it's always kind of been muddled. But I just know that my idea of gender and how that felt in my head has always been absent. So when I say that I'm non-binary now as like an almost 26-year-old, it's not because I feel like I'm in a gray area of a spectrum or I'm in part of a universe of, of a million different things. It's like I don't, truly don't hold the concept of gender in my head. And you know, I dress in gendered ways or whatever, but it, that's just because it's fashion. And to me, fashion mm. is fashion, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. That's always kind of been me. And I don't really think that I've ever fought or, you know, psychoanalyzed that part of myself. Because I just know that like, there will be no answers and I'm better off spending my existential energy on other things. Wow. Also, can't help but bring up that because you said earlier in this conversation that you've been diagnosed with autism later in life, I, my listening to you throughout the rest of the chat has been reshaped and reformed. I am lucky enough to have been raised around beautiful autistic humans. And so I have a deep uh, enough understanding of the different ways that their brains can work. And I, we don't put everyone who's autistic into one box, right? But one yeah. of the things I do know is that oftentimes we, we have data to back up that people who are autistic are, I don't know the specific number, but are more likely 
to be gender nonconforming because either boxes do not make sense and they never had or constructs don't make sense and they never have. So this idea of like, there's only two options. Oftentimes autistic people are like, well, that's obviously not the case. Yeah. <laughs> because it's yeah. just not. Like, I, I'm not going to buy your, like that's made up. And I know it is and my brain can't compute it. And so when people go, oh, well, they're autistic. So they're just like, they don't know. They don't really know, Ugh. you know, it's bullshit. How could they possibly know? As if they're saying that the brains are so much weaker. That's actually not the case. It's actually a hyper-focused individual who's able to understand the reality of a world structure. I mean, why am I telling you this? No, is, I love it. <laughs> but is that, is, am I right here? I'm just yeah. making this up as I go along, no, but it seems right. I think so. And you know, I love it because I mean, as an autistic person, I'm always preaching from my, you know, from my soapbox and I love doing that. But it's really refreshing to, you know, have an ally, like, you know, speak exactly what I would say. So thank you. Um, you have definitely not overstepped. I think it's true. And it's funny because, you know, gender, as we see it today in our like modern colonized world is it's a, it's a, it's, it's come from colonization. Like our concept of the gender binary as it stands today is a colonist, like, you know, concept. And, you know, like, that's not even that new. I mean, the mm. world is so much older than that. Like, come on. I think it, that, and that's something like that's not taught. And I can understand, again, that there's a complete lack of, you know, understanding, knowledge, information, historical records that are accurate as well. Um, you know, blatant lies, I think, in a lot of cases too. Yeah. But it does come down to that whole, like, you know, autistic people generally have, a more holistic view on things in in the sense that we don't tend to adhere to constructs because they just inherently don't make sense to us because our brain first sees that they are constructed and therefore not actually innate to how the world functions. Mm. So, you know, in that sense, gender for a lot of autistic people is 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 one of those things. It's powerful. I've seen a lot of beautiful videos, social posts from autistic creators, writers who have said, to you, it feels that non-binary is having a boom. To you, it feels there's this label and because of social media information, access technology, uh, that there's a ton of people around. But in their brains, this has always been an issue they've struggled with for the entire time that they could think. And you're a beautiful example because as we're tracking through your story, you're pushing back on even me and, and in the nicest, most beautiful, necessary way of my understanding of what you would have been experiencing because you're like, I wasn't thinking about it because it wasn't a thing for me. Like, it just yeah. wasn't. I did. Sorry, I, I would love to just say yes, but no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's it's one of, it's funny as well. I was um, speaking to someone in an interview the other day who asked me like, how did you get so camera confident? How did you, like, where did this come from? Did you have any training? Well, I'm like, I've always been like this. I've never had a problem. I've had a camera in my hand since I was like three years old. I have no issue. Like, and it's it's such a non-issue. Mm. The only thing that makes these sorts of things an issue is the outside world. Yes. And I think that is something that we need to pay a lot of consciousness to because the outside world impacts how people live their like live their lives. And it's really important that everyone is able to live their lives as they want. Preach. Okay. So I'm interested in when you started to speak into existence that you were non-binary, which I think you said was 21. Yeah. There's quite a large, a sizable gap between 12 years old and exploring uh, sexuality and then 21 exploring gender. 
How were those conversations with people different? Um, I'm really interested specifically in your family. Oftentimes, and I don't think this is a gross generalization, parents seem to struggle in modern day and age a little bit more with gender than sexuality for some reason. So I would love for you to unpack, uh, there's a sizable difference, two different types of conversations, but the same people. And how did that go for you? Yeah, with my sexuality, there was no issues at all. I think what happened and something that sticks in my mind is a memory is that my best friend, uh, who I've, you know, still my best friend to this day, we we became friends when we were about 12. And then they came out as as trans, like a trans man uh, at, I think, 14 and I was about 15. And so kind of breaking that sort of information to my parents was a conversation I had to educate them through, mm. which was fine again. And they sort of got a hold of it. I think where things got a little bit tricky was that I, my friend and I dated for like four months, you know? Okay. And so for them, they were kind of like, but you said you were bi, you said you were like pansexual or whatever at the time. Like, how does this make sense? And I was just like, because it does. Um, it doesn't need to make sense. It <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And they were kind of like, oh, okay. Like, you know, I mean, that's definitely not how my parents speak, but, you know, you know in my interpretation of the event. Uh, and so that was kind of how that went. I think something that's really interesting, um, you know, and I think adds to the pool of experience and, and sort of information sharing is that before I kind of grappled with my gender identity, because I knew that I was trans or non-binary or just like not a woman at the same time as this friend. And I was not ready. I was not articulate enough. I didn't feel like my life was in a place that I could come out as trans. And so what happened is that I became very ashamed. I wanted to make it not exist. And I just tried very hard to be a woman, which led to any relationships that I had with women or people who were identifying as women at the time. Awful and bad. And I literally vowed to myself that I was incapable of loving a woman or someone that was soft and tender or feminine or anything like that because of me. Mm. And for some reason, I just made that incredible jump. And so I had a couple of really, really bad relationships with women as I was like, well, girls as I was going through my teenage years and then only dated men, really. Uh, you know, so it's kind of one of those things where I think that had I been able to accept myself as not being a woman and being non-binary at 14 and 15, I would like to hope that I would have had some, you know, great relationships with women as I got older and, and headed into adulthood, but I didn't. Um, but that being said, like, it would have not been an issue for my parents. You know, I think my girlfriend at the time came to my uncle's 60th birthday and my mom had a, you know, a couple of drinks and she was very joyously telling people that like, you know, my baby has a girlfriend, like how cool, you know? So yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of it. It's always been the same. Wow. This is so fascinating to me. I also completely relate. It yeah. is actually not crazy to me. When I knew that I was gay, I avoided any person who was likely to be gay. In fact, yes. I had three friends who tried to befriend me when we were younger, who I'm friends with now or became friends with older, that I was just like, no. In fact, I did the opposite of no. I was homophobic. Like, mm. And we've heard that on the show before. Like, You're struggling so intensely inside, usually based off of you know social constructs or societal discomfort with the person that you know you want to be. And just the flags inside of our head, our brain, our body is just like, abort, avoid. Like, yeah. I don't want to address the reality, which is, that could be me. 
that is me or yeah. I want that, you know? So it makes, you said it and I was like, oh, I've never heard that. And also, yes. Yeah, well, like I didn't have any queer friends, like apart from my best friend, you know, and, you know, his friends. I didn't have any queer friends. I wasn't in the queer community. I literally like never spoke about it. I never engaged in anything that was queer. It was always like, avoid, like, don't let yourself think that way. Like, even though I was cool with my sexuality, I just knew that my sexuality was tied to my gender in mm. some kind of unconscious level. And I was just like, nope, 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 nope. And like, it was only until I started working, um, you know, on Rainbow History class in the start of 2021. So, you know, like not even two years ago that I got into the community. And I was like, where have I been my whole mm. life? It was like the best thing ever. But yeah. So unlike a lot of people we've spoken to, their coming out experience didn't necessarily affect their schooling or their extracurriculars. Uh, they came out, they spoke their truth. Of course, there was drama or trauma or whatever in their life. And then they just kept on living. Your story is unique because uh, sports has been a part of your, not just your life, your family's life for a very long time. So I'd like to unpack you for you to unpack for our listeners. What is the sport that you played for almost your entire life? You come out uh, for a second time. And how did that impact your ability to play the sport? Yeah, so I've played badminton my whole life. My family is like three generations into it. My grandmother started like the first badminton school that we are aware of in Australia. She's like a, a Commonwealth Games coach. My mom was like a triple junior national champion. She was like a junior national coach, like incredible, incredible people, given so much to the sport over almost like the last century. And I also played competitive badminton right up until I came out as non-binary at this kind of 21, 22 age. And I retired from badminton, essentially. I kind of packed my bag up and left the sport as a player, as a coach. I've continued to coach to this day. Um, and that was one of the hardest decisions that I've ever had to make. Well, one of the hardest decisions I've ever felt like I had to make. Mm because badminton is not a huge sport. It's not AFL. And, I, and it's so different to any of the mainstream sports in Australia or across the world that it's incomparable. Like I'm not even going to start comparing because it's just apples to oranges. But in my experience in badminton, my family's impact and involvement in badminton in Australia was so, it felt so big to me and their livelihoods felt so important to me, which they are, of course that I didn't want to be the first trans person in the sport to be out in the open. Yeah. I didn't want to be the person that had to inform any policy change, be in charge of anything. I didn't want anyone to look at me. I just wanted to go in and go out. I already had enough attention. I already had people, you know, coming up to me being like, oh, I remember you when you were a little kid. You know, like I yeah. had that sort of style of attention and I that's fine. That's cool. And it'd be cool if I rolled on in there today. But at that time in my life, I didn't want people to look at me for that reason, because I was very dysphoric at that point in time. I hadn't started, you know, testosterone. I, you know, was uncomfortable with how people were perceiving me. And I didn't want to be that person. Mm. I wasn't ready. I knew I wasn't ready. I wanted to do it one day, but I wasn't ready at 21. And it was incredibly hard to play my last nationals knowing that I was never going to return and that these people that I had grown up with, because, you know, to play nationals, you've got to play for a long time. Most, yeah. most, in most cases, 
that I'd never play against them again or never play with them again or never go away on this, you know, trip, you know? And so it was, it was, and I did, I did it alone. I was there alone. My parents went there. It was in Tasmania, you know, like I can't even like thinking about that trip. I still haven't really processed it. Mm. Well, I think anyone who plays a sport or is really um, emotionally attached to any aspect of their life, any extracurricular can understand that even if you make the decision, having to, to have something that is in you, in your DNA, wired, and literally in your DNA specifically, like past gem from generation to generation, and to feel that who you are, your truth, is going to stop you from being able to do that. If you don't have that relationship with something, especially if that thing is physical, it might be hard to understand how you lose a part of who you are entirely. And so when I'm listening to you, I can feel the weight of that decision. For a lot of the religious right who struggles with um, trans athletes or non-binary athletes playing a sport, they often get to say, well, just go play the sport with people of your new gender. That's just what they (laughs) chuck out there. But unfortunately, for a few sports in this country, that isn't always an option. It is an all-female team or an all-female sport or an all-female experience. And so I do think there's something unique about your story and, and, and the stories of a lot of other amazing trans athletes, that it's not really that simple, especially when you're playing at that level, to yeah. just be like, oh, you can go find a team in your town and pull together a bunch of boys. How do you respond to that? I think it's really misjudged. And I feel sorry that those people haven't been out there to gain more experiences to inform that kind of opinion. Because it's not even just a lack of like support at the high levels of a sport. It's the lack at the community level. It's the lack of medical uh, academia that we have about, you know, different bodies. It doesn't matter trans or not, just different bodies playing sport. A lot of uh, studies are done on 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 cis males. So, you know, it, it's the fact that they don't understand that, you know, the trans community has such a incredible level of trauma when it comes to participating in things and when it comes to being, you know, or feeling like a, a valid and wanted person in society. And so when people say that, then they come back and say, oh, but like, you don't need to go to nationals. You can just go down and like play with your friends. I'm sorry. I'm a very competitive person and I can go and play with my friends because, you know, they're my friends. But at the same time, I love the adrenaline rush that sport gives me. I love competition. I really enjoy that environment. It, It pushes me. It's challenging. It's all of the things that I love about sport. And so when someone says, oh, you know, okay, I can agree with all those other points. Yeah, 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 that's right. But also the sport still exists and you can go play it. Like, we shouldn't just be allowed to participate in sport. We should be allowed to succeed and win. Mm. And that's where I draw the line. Obviously, you're going to be unpacking a lot of this in your documentary series, Transathletica. And so there will be even bigger and better opportunities for you to go into this in more detail. But obviously, right now, this is a hot topic. Mm. I swam my entire life competitively, so I'm more focused uh, in consuming news about the athletes and all around the globe, really, but specifically the athlete in America who's struggling to swim at competitively and all of the drama that gets brought around that. And so I say religious right because it's easier for people to understand. But obviously, mm. when I say that, I mean really anyone who sits on one side and uses religion historically to 
enhance our ability to express ourselves. Yeah. They would say that it's unfair because someone has gone through consuming a medication that alters their body. To them, it's very black and white. You were born a woman or a man. You went about taking specific medicines that altered your body, and therefore you have an unfair advantage to those athletes. I know I'm reducing it to like such a yep. small stereotype, but how do you respond to that? And I I'm interested specifically in how you respond to people who say that about you. Like, well, you can't go back and play the sport because now you are at an unfair advantage because you've taken testosterone. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's almost good to reduce it to that because okay. um, you can start from the bottom up and something that we found in doing Transathletica and something that I think we knew all along, but we had a, a, a doctor of, I don't know his actual doctor title, but he's like a social scientist, Dr. Ryan Storr, who unpacked the whole sport is inherently unfair on absolutely all fronts, um, whether that is financial, socioeconomic, like who your parents are, who you know, like it's all all of that kind of stuff. And those sorts of variables play an incredible part in a person's performance and ability to perform in sport. And when it comes to the human body, I think that it's silly to reduce it to someone's like gender identity or their, you know, transness because when you actually do tests and studies on a wide range of bodies, you'll find that there are variables in that too. And I think that it's unfair to sort of point to someone's gender identity or how they choose to, you know, affirm that gender identity, you know, through medical things like uh, testosterone or, or estrogen and say that that is the sole reason why that they cannot compete in sport. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, when we have uh, consistent issues with doping and, and things like that in the mainstream media, it makes you wonder, like, those sorts of things, at least it does for me. And when people say that, I just like to turn them to people like Ryan and people like Dr. Ada Chung, who is an incredible trans ally and endocrinologist here in Melbourne, who is doing the work, is doing the research to actually get to the bottom of this and not just get to the bottom of it to exclude people, but get to the bottom of it to find out the actual science and then like make a inclusive space. Because mm. when people say, oh, you shouldn't be able to compete in sport, I'm like, why? Why do we want to uphold these sporting rules and codes that exclude people when there's been, you know, decades of research to say how important and valuable sport is, not only to the human body, but to our, our livelihoods. And so when people don't want to just maybe think about how we can maybe make a contact sport less contact for the sake of inclusivity, they're the kind of people that I just can't get on board with. Mm. Are there any sports, any teams, any countries that are doing this right? I think we're all sort of on the same page. Okay. And I think when it comes to what sports are doing at Ride, I can only really talk to the Australian landscape. And that is that different sports are doing it differently because every sport is different. And mm -hmm. see, this is where it comes back to. Like everything is different. And we all need to sort of get our own, you know, policies in line and, and look to the people on a global scale that are doing things, which is, you know, the, uh, the, you know, Global Olympic Committee, for example, you know, they're doing a lot of research at the moment. We spoke to someone who is doing some work with them to get to the bottom of this kind of, you know, dilemma that we're experiencing now. And I think in Australia, there's a couple of collectives that national bodies of sport have joined in to, you know, help this 
kind of cause, which is really important. Um, off the top of my head, again, I don't, you know, I can't speak to a lot of other sports, but I do know badminton is doing a lot and they're, they're kind of one of the, you know, less mainstream sports that are getting into this because, again, there's a different kind of pressure. There's a different pressure that goes to the AFL and rugby and cricket than there is to sports like badminton and, you know, like I can't even think, like volleyball, for example. Mm. So everyone's kind of doing it in their own way, but there is being progress made. Did this experience of not just having to come out and then the impact that that had in the sport that you love and the relationship with your family make you question your gender or your sexuality? And I don't mean question like, am I this? I mean question in the unhealthy way. Like, well, should I just go back in the closet just so I can play this sport? Because I just want people to like understand the impact on young people's lives mentally, like how damaging it can be to take away things that they love. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was incredibly damaging for me in some sense because I did know that I wasn't a woman uh, when I was 14 and 15. And at that point in time, I was kind of heading into that really crucial point of uh, sporting de like development. So I'd, I've played in state teams and been at a state and uh, Victorian like top level since I was like 11. And so I got to 15 and it was like, okay, like you get serious about it now. Like you go over to Malaysia and you go into Indonesia and you do all these training camps and, and you know, that was kind of on the horizon for me. And at 15, I was like, I can't do it. Like I, I cannot come out. I will have to leave this sport. I don't want to leave it. Like I'm training like five, six, seven times a week. I go to my, like my mom's sessions when I'm not training. Like it's my whole life. It's where my like family of friends are. I've grown up with these people since we were like little, you know, mm. and I was like, that no, can't do it. Like, it's better to just put up with it because at that point in time, I was like, well, my performance in sport feels masculine to me. So I can just, just keep going, even though it kind of hurts a little bit and deal with what I felt at the time was the, the mass of the problem, which was like my life outside of sport. Because obviously, you know, in sport, you've got a uniform or, you know, playing styles are, are different for everyone. So, you know, I just kind of was like being myself anyway. But it was when I got to pick and choose my wardrobe, when I had to, you know, introduce myself to other people and strangers and go to parties and things like that. That's what I felt like was the big issue for me. Mm. Final question. There are young people all around the world who are in that exact same situation. They're playing a sport that they love. They're challenging their own relationship to gender or sexuality. And it's having an impact on them mentally. And so I just, final kind of thoughts. What would you like to say to that person, to that young Rudy Jean Rigg? Yeah, I know it's hard. And I'm not going to sit here and say that it's easy because it's not. And for anyone that is grappling with things like sexuality and gender, trying to play sport, trying to be good at sport, you know, just trying to enjoy yourself. When it comes to coming out and when it comes to sharing who you are with other people, even though you're telling the outside world, it has to be for you. You cannot come out for the benefit of other people because your life starts with you. Like, as my dad says, you're number one. And so... It's not that you have to be sure about yourself. Definitely, I'm not sure about myself. Like just, you know, I don't think that ever changes. It's not that. It's just that when it comes to feeling that pressure, I understand how it feels and it has to be for you. And whatever, take that as, as you want. It, it's different for everyone. But at the end of the day, do things on your own terms. Brilliant. 
We could talk for hours and hours and hours. I'm going to have you <laughs> back here because there's just so much intellect and vigor and thought that you bring in empathy to all of these conversations. Your work on Rainbow History class is like iconic. And so I think there's a lot more fruitful, important conversations we need to have together, specifically around sports. And so I will 100% have you back. If people want to find you right now, if they can't wait for the future episode, where do they find you? Yeah, so you can find me in three core places on the internet. So number one is Rainbow History Class, all one word. Number two is transathletica.series. And number three is Rudy Jean Rigg. And those usernames, thankfully, go across all platforms, so you shouldn't have any problem. Oh, brilliant. That was a smart PR and marketing decision for your future self. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for being vulnerable. Um, I've learned so much. I'm moved and inspired. So I really, really appreciate you coming today and have a fabulous rest of your week. Thank you so much. And thank you for holding these conversations. It's so important, John. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, we are back. How are you going? How are you feeling? If this episode left you wanting more information about our wonderful LGBTQIA plus alphabet, then you should check out Minus 18. They're Australia's LGBTQIA plus charity. They have heaps of resources on their website and they run trainings for workplaces and classrooms. Minus 18 are on all socials at minus18youth and their website is minus18.org.au. But Minus 18 isn't a helpline. So if you're looking for support, you can call QLife on 1-800-184-527 for free every day from 3 p.m. till midnight. If you're feeling anxious and not up to talking on the phone, they also have web chat at qlife.org.au. Lifeline is also available 24 hours a day for crisis support and suicide prevention. Their number is 13 11 14. If you want to be a part of the Come Out Wherever You Are community, you can slide into our DMs on Instagram at Come Out Wherever You Are. You can also follow me at Sean Zeps. That's S-E-A-N-S-Z-E-P-S. Come Out Wherever You Are is presented by me, Sean Zeps, producer Lindsay Green, executive producer Jennifer Goggin, and audio producer Chris Marshall.